Section 5 of Northern Trails, Book 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Melissa Jean. Northern Trails, Book 2. By William J. Long. Pequam the Fisher, Part 2. Life is here, you see, though it is now hidden away where it takes more than eyes to find it. Tracks are everywhere, all kinds of tracks telling their stories of last night's wanderings, from the dainty tracery of the woodmice to the half-filled path that leads you to the moose-yard on the other side of the great ridge. Follow any of them, and you find life, or the plain record of life, that goes swiftly and silently about its chief end, and concerns itself diligently about its own business. There, a little farther on, are your own snowshoe slots of yesterday, and see close behind them, following every turn and winding of your trail, but never crossing it, are the cunning tracks of Pequam the fisher. Clear to your camp in a five-mile circle he followed your trail, and even now behind you he may be sniffing again at the new, strange tracks that rouse his curiosity. Once feeling that I was followed, I stole back cautiously, and caught him hanging to my heels like a shadow. But why he follows my trail I have never been able to find out. It is a good plan in the winter woods to scatter food along your trail, for it overcomes the wood folk's distrust of man's footprints. But long before I found that out and practiced it, Pequam had followed me. Perhaps he had followed the trappers so long to steal the bait from their marten traps that it had become a habit. It was on a morning like this, still and cold and lifeless, that I left the big lumber camp on the Dungavon and struck off eastward for the barrens. I was after Caribou, but two miles away in the woods I ran across old Newell the Indian, whose hunting camp was far up on the river, moving swiftly along with his eyes on a fresh trail. "'Hello, brother. What you hunt him?' I hailed him. For answer, he pointed with a grunt to the snow, where a fisher had gone along that morning, as if someone were after him. "'Pequam in a hurry this morning. Thinks if Newell around, fisher better mog along somewhere else,' I ventured. And the grim old face before me softened at the tribute to his skill in hunting. "'Oh, I get him,' he said, smiling. "'Dust a fellow rob my sapel traps. Find him where he kill deer this morning.' Now he go off with his belly full, sleepy, oh sleepy. Find him by and by, pretty soon quick now. You want to go along help him? He added invitingly. That was a new kind of hunting for me, so I left the caribou gladly and followed the old Indian. He had no gun, only an axe, and I was curious to know how he intended to catch so spry and wary an animal unaided. But I asked no questions, following silently and keeping out to one side of the trail looking far ahead for a glimpse and a possible shot at Pequam among the trees. Indeed, it was probably the sight of my rifle and a light axe at my belt that caused Newell to issue his invitation. The fisher was plainly suspicious, or alarmed, for he was travelling rapidly, yet with marvellous craftiness. Newell assured me that Pequam had neither seen nor smelled him. Probably he had eaten full and was now minded to lie down for a long sleep, and like a bear seeking a winter den after the tell-tale snow has fallen, was making a cunning trail to deceive and mislead any that might try to find him. This was my own explanation, and good enough for the moment. But later Newell gave a very different reasoning for the crooked trail we were following. Again and again the trail doubled back on itself, where Pequon came back for a distance, stepping in his own footprints, and then leaped away in a great side-jump into some thick cover where his new tracks were hidden. Newell, who was watching for such things, generally saw the trick and turned aside, but more than once he was deceived and we went on to find the trail ending abruptly with a single footprint in the snow. Then we would turn back and hunt on either side till we picked up the trail again. Twice the tracks ended at the foot of a great tree, where Pequam had climbed and ran among the branches overhead, 
and then we had to circle widely to find where he had leaped down and run on again. Once he tunneled for a long distance under the snow, and when we found the trail it was far out to one side and running at right angles to his former course. So we followed him, mile after mile, and I had long given up the thought of shooting in the fascination of working out the riddle which Peacombe had spread for us. When Newell, who had been growing more and more cautious for the past ten minutes, stopped suddenly and pointed ahead. And when I glided up to him there was no sign of a den or a hidden log, but only a little hollow, half filled with a flurry of snow, where the trail disappeared, as if Pequam had suddenly taken wings to himself and flown away. "'Where is he?' I whispered. "'Oh, we got him now. Good place,' chuckled Newell. "'Pequam think he fool em old Injun. Hides he footing. Now he think safe. Go sleep. Guess he fool self dis time. By kosh, oh by kosh.' From a great hole in the top of a fallen log, fifty feet away, a black streak shot out and vanished in a flurry of snow. Pequam, instead of going in at this hole, had tunneled out of sight for ten or fifteen feet, and had gone in at the opposite end of the log, which was hidden in the deep snow and bending evergreens. A cunning trick, for any one approaching the half-buried log would see the inviting hole at the top, but find no track leading up to it, and so would conclude naturally that the den was unoccupied. Had we been an hour later, we would have found him heavy with sleep in the log, but we had followed too hot on his trail. He had barely settled himself down in his warm den under the snow when our approach startled him, and he was off on another crooked trail. We stopped where we were to buy old Kittle, for the cold of the northern forests is killing in its intensity, and the moment you cease action, that moment nature clamors for fire and food with an insistence never known elsewhere. Late in the afternoon, after following the fresh trail through all its doublings and windings, we came to where it leaped aside, without warning, into a dense thicket of low firs. There it ended, as if the ground had been opened to swallow Pequam. But just beyond, a long mound showed where a fallen log lay buried under the snow, and we knew we should find him there fast asleep. Unslipping the light axe, I moved cautiously to the smaller end of the log, while Newell crouched at the butt and began to shovel aside the snow with a snowshoe. My end of the log was solid. In the whole shell after I had laid it bare of snow, I found only a single hole, and that hardly big enough to admit a squirrel. Meanwhile, Newell had pushed a pole into the hollow butt till it was seized savagely and almost jerked out of his hand. A fierce snarl and a muffled scratching told us plainly that we had at last reached the end of the trail. Very deliberately, the old Indian cut a dozen more poles while I stood guard, and wedged them tightly into the hollow butt. Next he enlarged the squirrel hole, and I had a glimpse of glossy fur as Pequam rushed towards the place where he had entered, only to find it securely shut. The squirrel hole was then closed by stakes driven through the rotten wood beneath, and Pequam was caught with only some six feet of hollow shell to rage around in. I confess I would gladly enough have stopped here, for the sight of any trapped animal, however fierce, that has known all its life only absolute liberty, always awakens in me the desire to break its bars and set it free again. But Newell had no such scruples. Here was a prime fur worth eight dollars, to say nothing of plundered martin traps. The fire that sleeps in an Indian's eyes, and that always kindles at the sight of game, began to flash as he chopped a long notch through the top of the shell, driving in stakes as he advanced, and slowly but surely pinning Pequam into a space where a blow of the axe would finish it all. Through the narrow slit I could see him, the flash of his eye and the white gleam of his teeth under the brown muzzle as he tried the opening and then the sweep of his bushy tail as the axe drove him aside again and again he whirled on us savagely for unlike the fox and bear that know when you have won and that lie down quietly for the blow 
Pequon fights and defies you to the very end. Game-killer and robber of traps he may be, but traps are barbarous things at best, and the animal that robs them is only saving some innocent life from suffering, though he knows it not. Here he was, the shadow of the woods, become solid substance at last, his marvellous cunning overmatched by man's intelligence. Not a chance left in the tough shell that held him fast, while the steel bit nearer and nearer, and the stakes pinned him in. And there was something magnificent, an appeal not to be answered lightly, in the way he clung to life, claimed it, fought for it, and screeched out at us defiantly, that his life was his own, and we must not take it away. "'Got him safe now,' I ventured at last. "'Safe,' grunted the Indian, between the steady chucks of his axe. "'By kosh, Pequam never safe till he dead, and den he fool me two tree time when he only play dead. Best cock him dat gun. Pequam got plenty tricks he ain't try yet.' But there was no need of the gun, and I did not look to see the end. Before the short twilight had fallen on the woods, we had stroked the splendid fur and valued it, and were heading swiftly for the little hunting camp on the river, with Pequam's black coat hanging limp and soft and warm between the Indian's shoulders. End of Pequam the Fisher End of Section 5